0: Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Charlie. I'm Coleman. This week, we are joined by Emma Lewis, owner of Rare Form and The 20th, a pop-up art and vintage shop based in Chicago. Emma works to digitally restore and reinterpret 100-year-old designs to create unique greeting cards, stationery, and more. She seeks to empower and affirm others with a brand that combines vintage images with unapologetic contemporary feminist language and over-the-top messages of affirmation. She plans to open her first brick and mortar store called Rare Form in Andersonville this August at 5438 North Clark. Rare Form will be a vintage-inspired home decor concept store, a blend of art and home goods with vintage pieces mixed in and a European flair. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I have to say I'm especially excited for this one because we just had you at the vintage market uh, last weekend, the weekend before, and you were, you had your booth right in the middle of the street. You were definitely a highlight there. I know we had a, we had someone do an interview with you about Vintage Market and your business. And it was very, very exciting. It's one of
1: my favorite markets to do all year.
0: It was one of my favorite markets to do. It was very hot, but there was we had water for everyone. So to start, we always open with, could you tell us a little bit more about you, your background? And I'm very, very curious if you could provide a little more information about the 20th slash rare form, because I I know they're kind of going to be different entities here. So I'd love to just hear what the difference between the two are.
1: Absolutely. So I am a Californian originally. I've been in Chicago for quite a while, um, I consider myself kind of a converted Chicagoan. <laughs> I moved out here for grad school about 12 or 13 years ago. I'm an art historian, so I'm formally trained in art history, and I used to teach art history. The 20th is my store slash brand. Um, it's probably what most people know me for. Um, I've been doing pop-up markets for the last year and a half, almost two years. I've been a, um, a vendor with the Andersonville Galleria so a lot of people know my work that way. I sell antique prints, vintage prints, and then I also sell my own stationery line that has grown substantially. So the difference between the the two, to answer your question, up until this point, the 20th has been the kind of all-encompassing name for my store when I go to markets and I sell the antiques and I sell the stationery that ha- all kind of has the common theme of Art Deco uh, motifs. And when I opened my brick-and-mortar store, I decided to call it Rare Form, Uh, but I'm going to keep the 20th as the brand name for the stationery line that I design because I do sell it wholesale. So I do sell my greeting cards and art prints and notepads that you can find in the Galleria in stores all across the country. So going forward, you can buy the 20th brand at Rareform, along with a whole bunch of other new uh, brands that I'm going to be selling alongside my own.
0: That's great. You have your own umbrella company already. So the first thing I was going to ask you was how you digitally restore designs. However, I realized I don't really have a great idea of what digital restoration is. So my first question is actually, what is digital restoration? (laughs)
1: So it's not an official term, it's one I kind of came up to describe my process after I had started doing it in order to make my stationery. I work with antique objects, so I collect these 100-year-old pieces of art. Sometimes they're offset lithographs, sometimes they're etchings, sometimes they're 150 years old, sometimes they're 90 years old. So you can imagine in the life of an object, especially a piece of paper, you get scratches, you get foxing uh there are you know just kind of the ways that time imprints itself onto the object and so when i saw the antique prints like you saw me doing with my booth at the vintage market where i have all of the originals i have to do what you would consider restoration work to get them looking the way they do so i have to put them into a you know safe environment, take out any of the water damage that I can. So digital restoration is basically the same thing, but using Photoshop. So I take these images, I take high res images of them, and I use Photoshop to take out water stains, creases, places where the ink has bled through. So when it comes to my stationary line, my the art prints. Pe- most people know me for the Chicago's for lovers one. That's been my most popular one. Um, also the 420 lady. Of, <laughs> the, the 420 somewhere lady. So for example, with that one, that lady came from a 1920s cover of a magazine. So I had to kind of take the lady from the magazine cover, do some digital restoration, also make some changes and kind of obviously add my contemporary uh, language to it to kind of bring her into the 21st century. So digital restoration is sometimes as simple as this wallpaper, you know, has a water stain on it and I need to, you know, use the Photoshop tools to take the water stain out so I can print it on a card and it's a nice, beautiful pattern. Um, or sometimes it is kind of taking the image from 100 years ago and, you know, making it more contemporary.
2: Mm. So where do you find these designs and objects and all that?
1: So I am a collector. <laughs> um, it's That is the most frequent question that I get asked at every single market that I do. Where do you find all of these? And it's really easy for me to do because I love everything that I collect. So, um, you know, I always tell people, you know, if you think this is a lot and a big collection, you should see my office uh, or the ones I keep for myself. So the, the official answer is, you know, I work with dealers that have specialties. I get to know people in the field who I you know, learn that I can trust and have a business relationship with. I would love to go to France and just go searching for them myself. And hopefully that will be in the cards soon. But at the moment, my, you know, three-year-old has, uh, taken priority over transatlantic (laughs) antiquing. So for now, I've met some people abroad that have collections that send them to me. But I do go to local estate sales. And anytime I go to a new city, especially if I'm doing a trade show, trying to sell my greeting cards... Um, I've done five trade shows in the last year, so I'll always find at least find time to go to at least one antique store, book antique bookstore, or used bookstore, and look for something that looks like it's neglected on the outside, um, that's at the bottom of a dust pile, and see if there's any art that I can salvage on the inside and kind of give it a second life before the elements kind of seep their way too far in to save the interior.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So the world of objects is kind of your oyster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, like like many people at the vintage market, I um, proudly call myself a picker, meaning I will spend you know most people will kind of do kind of a cursory shop through an antique mall, whereas, I will be there for hours because I have to look at every single thing and then go back and take another look to make sure there wasn't something behind something that I missed. Um, And this is my idea of fun. So,
2: (laughs) Fair enough. Sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, We mentioned in the intro earlier about uh, digital restoration and reinterpretation. Uh, We talked about restoration a bit, and I think you kind of touched on it a bit, but what do you mean by it? reinterpretation of these designs is that kind of just modernizing them or how do you see that
1: so th- i think there's an aesthetic component of it um like we discussed kind of taking the ladies and changing sometimes i change their clothes sometimes i uh, i basically if you can think of it almost like a digital collage mm-hmm. you know i'll take i have i have amassed an archive um of uh, images in the public domain. So if, you know, if something is a certain age and is not under copyright, um, I've I've basically amassed my own archive of actual, the actual prints. Um, and I do sell some of them and I keep some of them. So I kind of draw from this archive. And for example, those t-shirts that I designed for the market were an example of when I really had to change an image in this almost collage-like way to get it to be what I wanted, I found a long string of drawings of people carrying furniture and lamps and clothing um, that was all in a straight line, and I cut it apart, and I stretched it out, and I layered them on top of each other so that it looked like a big pile of people, um, (laughs) and then kind of wove the language of, let's go vintage shopping in Andersonville, into it because that was kind of the new composition I wanted to present. So sometimes it's very involved. Sometimes it's more a matter of giving um, a lot of time these images of women uh, from the 1920s more of a contemporary voice. So I, for example, my boss lady is one of my best selling ladies. I put anything I put her on, people just love. Um, I have her on a mug, I have her on a candle, I have her on a sticker. And of course she was my first best-selling greeting card. So she just had that energy and I gave her the contemporary mm-hmm. um, boss energy uh, language. And so I think what people tell me, the reason why they identify so much with my work is because it's this very you know interesting and kind of different form of illustration that you don't see around a lot. But the phrasing is something they say every day or their friend says every day. And so it's really easy to buy that sticker or that mug for their friend because it's part of their everyday vocabulary.
0: Yeah, I remember that it was very cool at the vintage market. We had um, Anchorfish uh, screen printing was there doing shirts on site and you had designed all all those designs for them. It was very, very cool. I think one of the things when I was looking through all of your, your pieces online, I love that art style. That's sort of very prim and proper, you know, like the art deco uh, style of pe- how people would dress at the time and the etiquette, but with the language that you put on it, it makes that character relatable. It makes that person feel, I, I mean, it's it makes that person feel like a present, a modern contemporary person. And especially, like you said, you have this boss lady, uh, woman, woman character. And there's a part of it that I feel like even I would put that picture or that piece of stationery or something on my desk and look at it and be like, I am a boss. Like, I know I'm not a woman, but I I am a boss and I can do this. I can handle this. It has that feel. I feel like we feel we, we get you a sense of you in that art too. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. It's, it's consistently surprised me, especially as I've branched into wholesale, which is basically a whole second business and I've grown my line, especially of greeting cards, it still shocks me that people think that I'm funny <laughs> because <laughs> it's really just my sarcastic sense of humor. I do feel like there's a little bit of California still left in it, but i it, it's still just, it makes me so happy when I'm at markets and I get to interact with customers um, or at trade shows and I get to see people who see so many greeting cards every day of their lives and they just go up to my wall and start laughing because they've never heard of a Zaddy's Day card before. <laughs> and, you know.
0: Okay, I need to know what day that is and I need <laughs> to get some of those cards.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, well, it's my card that says, Happy Zaddy's Day uh, till you find piece of grade A non-toxic masculinity. <laughs> yes, that's, so that's, that's a favorite. Um, oh my gosh, I love that. But it, yeah, just, it, it's honestly just my sense of humor and and so it is one of the most fulfilling things about this great especially the greeting card line because it's really what's taken off and I have more than a hundred greeting cards in my line now um, and it is really just I look at these images I collect them sometimes the language comes to me right away sometimes I have to put the image into my archive and really think on it until it come the right words come for it but it is really just kind of recontextualizing these images into our modern vernacular in a way that is funny, or at least most people think is funny <laughs> oh, yeah. if they can tolerate a few swear words here and there.
0: <laughs> well, I have to say, and this just came off the top of my head because I just had this conversation with my mom yesterday about about greeting cards because my mom's cleaning a bunch of stuff out and she found all these old greeting cards that she kept. But one of the things we were talking about was our generation doesn't seem to do them a lot. And I think part of that is, you know, we've become resistant to these unnamed large companies uh, that make these very generic or sort of derivative greeting cards. And to me, when I'm sent a card, I don't generally keep it. You know, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing I'm going to hang on my wall. But the cards you have, that's the sort of thing I would keep. That's the sort of thing I would display. Like even the um, there was one oh, so cool, you have one that has this beautiful design of I think a peach on the uh, on the front of it. And it's exactly the sort of thing that I would put in a, a glass frame and hang on my wall. The only thing is I wouldn't be able to see who wrote what on the other side of it or in the middle of it. So but.
1: that is why I started making art prints. People were telling me that they were framing my cards. And they were like, I send this card, but I want one for myself because I want to frame it and put it on the wall. <laughs> and and I was like, oh no, that's it's a weird size. It's the wrong paper. I was like, I can just make that into an art print for you and it will be a standard size and you can put it in whatever frame you want. And that was how I started my entire line of art prints. And when I, I debuted them, I think, right around April or May of last year, and I put them right into the Galleria. And that was the first time that I saw, wow, these are gonna be my bread and butter. <laughs> you know, this is. Yeah. This. And then I saw all summer these art prints just stopping people in their tracks. Um, often the boss lady that has uh, <laughs> another phrase that I use with it, <laughs> um, uh, and then the 420 lady. And now my not today Satan print is actually my bestseller, but. But yeah, that's that's how I got to art prints, is because you know I I that exact kind of instinct is what allowed me to see that I could expand my line, for, you know, just
0: out of grading cards. That's great. So I'd love to discuss your education background a little bit, if I may, because you you have a PhD in art history, correct? Yes. What is it about art history that intrigues you the most? Because I'm in your PhD, I imagine you studied a lot of different styles and genres and time periods. And it seems art deco might be your favorite style that you studied, but what is is it about art history that draws you in and especially led to inspiring what you do now?
1: Um, So I think it's probably the case for a lot of people who end up pursuing a PhD. I, uh, my identity as a human has been entirely tied to art history as long as I can remember. It was no surprise to anyone when my sophomore year of college I decided that I was gonna get a PhD in art history Mm -hmm. Um, what's interesting though is that as I've made this career change it allowed me to remember that the reason I was first interested in art history was because I was an artist and when I was in academia it was a lot of you know using my analytical the analytical part of my brain to the point where because it's so demanding to be in a doctorate program i almost forgot that i had a creative part of my brain yeah so when i started this project making the cards it very quickly reminded me that i needed needed a creative outlet so basically when i got to college and i realized what i kind of sat in on my first upper division uh you know serious art history class and i saw what academic art history was i knew right away this is my whole life you know this is the most exciting thing the first lecture i mean i did have some of the best art you know living art historians um on the berkeley faculty at that point so i I had a pretty good introduction but I just I knew immediately I've never heard anything as exciting as this professor talking about French revolutionary art, not even my field um, <laughs> in an academic context. I, yeah. it, it just blew my mind. And so while my career path has diverged a lot from the traditional academic path, I could never lose that you know core passion that I have for art history. It, it really does define everything about me
0: was going into academia your initial thought when you started the PhD program? I know that tends to be, you know, when someone's going to get a PhD, a large part of that is just staying in academic uh, academia. So, I mean, you, uh, like you said, you've diverged into a completely different direction, but was that your intention was to go in and, and then teach this or research and from the academic side?
1: It was, and I did, you know, I got my PhD. I was teaching at Lake Forest College. Um, I was you know, publishing articles, uh, interestingly, not on Art Deco, but on in the field of the history of photography, and not as surprisingly, the history of Chicago art. So or what I called Chicago art history, I wrote a lot about the Chicago Bauhaus. Um, So same similar time period, but but different. But like many people, (laughs) the pandemic just completely upended all of my plans so i was i basically went i was teaching at lake forest i went on maternity leave in december of 2019 eight months pregnant and you know i had my baby in february of 2020 so pretty much the ultimate pandemic baby and i'm also married to an english teacher so it was very clear right away that the field of teaching was going to be changing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And I had no idea when I would be, if colleges were going to be in session, what the kind of already precarious field of um, adjuncting, which is what I was technically doing, was going to look like, if there were going to be more or less academic um, positions, tenure track positions when I went back into the market. You know, as it is, I... I'm part of the generation that graduated college in 2008. Um, So I've been hearing my entire adult life. There are no jobs. There are no Mm -hmm. jobs in art history. there are just no jobs. No one has funding, you know, funding cuts. The humanities are gone. This school lost their entire art history department. You know, so looking at that experience and then the pandemic, I, it became pretty clear to me that everything was going to change and not only that but i became a mother <laughs> in complete isolation <laughs> so you know there were there were parts i i never lost the passion for art history that i just described to you but i did like many people find myself mentally just not reaching my full potential within the constraints of academia Um, And that was even after I had considered expanding to museums or I'd started to think about how do you use an art history degree that's not teaching in a classroom? But the pandemic, it really, and again, the pandemic plus baby, newborn baby, um, having all of your plans upended in your career and then also all of your plans upended for starting a new, you know, second chapter of your life as a parent, I didn't even have the chance to think about it. It just happened, uh, and as I talk to more people, I I find out that was the case for a lot of uh, a lot of people. That you know the necessity of invention and all that. So I started selling. I have a lot of friends who are artists that got through the pandemic selling their art online on Instagram, and so I thought, well, maybe I can sell antiques on Instagram and get away with antiquing as my job. Wouldn't that be funny if I got to <laughs> <laughs> call this my work? And my very first market was the September, so the last date of 2021, Andersonville Vintage Market. And I brought All breakable stuff, and I did not have a tent, and I did not have sunscreen, and I ended up, (laughs) all of my displays got blown over. And um, a lot of people in this antique community in Andersonville remember this very well. Um, And, uh, you know, completely sunburned and like, oh, this is why people have tents even in September. (laughs) So, you know, that's where I started. And the Galleria, I owe so much to the Andersonville Galleria. I went in there and just said, Hey, all the antique malls are full um, and have waiting lists. Is this something you would be interested in? And they said, absolutely. And they supported me from day one. Not only supported me, but were so affirming in every step that I took with them. Honestly, they were, I owe so much to them. Um, so I, I just kind of hit the ground running with um, that retail space, with markets, and none of it was planned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's still not, honestly.
0: I feel like we all at one point were just like, yeah, we can't plan anymore. There's no planning anymore. Things just kinda happen. Yeah. Plan one week ahead and realize, oh no.
1: And it's funny because the people say that exact thing about having babies too. <laughs> like <laughs> so it's like it it's like really what's happening for me on both levels. Like, oh, like You know somebody saw my kid at the park the other day it just didn't know him at all like is he an aquarius and i was like uh you can tell that (laughs) (laughs) i I, I didn't have you know i didn't plan on having this like really tall kid who can outrun me at age three you know it's
0: is he an aquarius
1: he is (laughs) 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 he's very much an aquarius Anyway, yeah, so it's um, people ask me all the time as if as if I had a plan to get to this point, but it has really been just kind of following the lead of people around me and kind of seeing where things go and putting 100% and sometimes more than 100% into every new experiment with the
2: business. Yeah, no, definitely. You kind of touched on it there a bit, but I mean, if we look at it objectively step back you were dealing with the global pandemic and a new kid and everything happening during lockdown and starting a new business and now you're opening a brick and mortar location and so what is your secret to balancing this, if any? Please, please tell us. <laughs>
1: there, there's no balance. <sighs> um, no, honestly, though, this is not, it's not the only reason I'm opening the store, but it is actually one of the main reasons I am opening the store is to find some balance because I will not stop doing pop-up markets entirely because I have found an incredible community through these markets and I love interacting with customers in that way because you have thousands of people coming through um, and so you get to share your story and you know talk to so many more people than come through in a regular store so I'm I'm definitely not going to stop but in terms of my you know weekends and what summer schedules uh, are for festivals in Chicago, the brick and mortar store is my attempt at having a bit more of a regular schedule. Um, Not to say that it's going to be less work because I know it's a lot of work, but that's part of it.
2: Yeah. Was there uh, any difficulties you faced while building out that brick and mortar uh, store going through that process?
1: So I'm sure I will (laughs) encounter more. Um, I'm pretty early on in the process, but one thing that I've learned from talking to other business owners um, when I go to wholesale trade shows and I get to talk to other store owners about their brick and mortar is that, again, this was not intentional, but I did spend a good year and a half out in the streets of Chicago every weekend building a following, building a customer base and getting, you know, actively asking for feedback from my customers. What did they want to see in my line that I design? What kind of antiques of the antique prints that I sell do they want to see more of? What am I not making that I could sell that, you know, they would like to see, whether it's my patterns or patterns of a similar aesthetic. Um, And so that has been Enormously helpful um, in terms of building my confidence as well. Going into a brick and mortar, it's a pretty big change in business model to go from 35 markets in a year. Pretty much every weekend, I have one to three simultaneous festivals all summer um, to a brick and mortar. So I really have to credit my customers and the other businesses, um, the leaders in the Andersonville business community, especially the Galleria, but um, a lot of others as well that have really given me the confidence to kind of make this transition. Um, so I guess I would say one challenge has been really trying to <laughs> manifest that mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and really carry that confidence because as with you know many businesses or within academia, there's plenty of imposter syndrome. And, you know, I have plenty of thoughts of, well, this works really well with the festivals. Why am I changing it? You know, but the answer is mostly for my family, but also because there are so many more things that I want to show people that I can't bring to a festival (laughs) because of space limitations. And, um, you know, we can only carry so much and set it up and take it down every weekend.
0: I want to bounce off coleman's question there actually too because i mean I, you mentioned how helpful the community has been which i love you know obviously that's a big part of what we try and accomplish in andersonville as a supportive community but so i mean it's 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 nice to hear that i guess you don't feel like you're facing significant competition from the people that are uh, or competitive behaviors from the people you're talking to have you felt any pressure from people to alter your style to, I guess, conform to something that you might not necessarily do in terms of your art or how you display, or is there anything that's pressured you that way, or has it been the complete opposite and it's just everyone's been like, I love the way you do it, love like the way you set it up, You know, your style, your unique process. I'm, I'm curious about your interactions with people in that way.
1: So I guess it depends on if you're talking about more about customers or other business owners, I'd be lying if I said there's been absolutely no competitive interactions. I think it's pretty natural for the business world. But I also think as I've spent more time kind of comfortably calling myself a business owner, that I have found a large group of people who actively... And purposefully and mindfully call themselves community over competition, that it is a real movement, especially among younger generation, Mm -hmm. uh, the younger generation of business owners. I think there were a lot of rules about the way that you were supposed to do business before. Honestly, not to get on the soapbox, but a lot of them are rooted in the patriarchy. Um, So, you know, I often tell my employees that, you know, the customer always right, is always right. You know, that's, you know, that's rooted in the patriarchy. (laughs) The first thing you
0: learn is wrong when you start a job. The customer is not always right.
1: (laughs) Right. We can always, you know, be polite, but that it's also, you know, important to be a human with boundaries. And so I do think you know, for me, and again, I have really two entirely, they're not separate, but I have really two businesses. The wholesale business is completely different than the retail business. And, you know, with, re- with wholesale, I am, my customers are business owners, um, and my peers are business owners, and they are also my competition. But what I've found is that people tell me, my work is really different than anything they're seeing out there. And even if I have the same sense of humor as someone that is also making greeting cards, for example, that their illustration style is very different. And so one resource that I've found has been professional organizations. So I joined the Greeting Card Association. It's been a great way to meet other Um, stationary addicts and um, (laughs) people who are constantly thinking of puns and taking notes on their phone when somebody says something funny and you know on the (laughs) retail side one of the greatest gifts that I have gotten out of this business has been the community of pop-up vendors and a lot of them are participating in the Andersonville market but they also do other markets with me and some art markets, but honestly, mainly vintage. The the vintage sellers in Chicago and these pop-up markets that I do, the amount of community that has come out of that for me, the way that you have a booth buddy who's going to watch your booth when you have to run to the bathroom and you have no help for an eight-hour show or you know, one of your displays falls down and they have an extra bungee cord or, you know, somebody's always got to have a stash of Band-Aids because (laughs) it's like rough work out there in the setting up tents. So, you know, it is truly remarkable considering how isolated I was as a pandemic new mom. And honestly, I, you know, coming out of grad school, grad school can be pretty isolating. A lot of my grad school friends moved out of Chicago. And I was struggling with chronic illness for a long time before I got pregnant. So I had three or four years of pretty much debilitating chronic illness where I was already socially isolated. To then go into the pandemic and the isolation of being a new mom to all of a sudden I have a 100 new friends um, <laughs> by accident, you know, because we've just been in the same place every weekend through these markets and we can all relate to each other. And so few of them see it as competition. Um, we really have built an incredible community. Um, and so it's it's astounding to me, honestly, how fast and easy it was because you hear a lot about how as you get older, it can be harder to make adult friends. And, (laughs) um, you know, being a small business owner, you don't have work, a workplace um, to make new friends in uh, and how much I've kind of bypassed that with this community. Uh, I'm so grateful to all of them,
0: especially after COVID, when I feel like isolation became a sort of natural part of our demeanor and our behavior. I mean, I think we all took a very long time and still are dealing with the, okay, I'm done with the thing I need to do today. I'm gonna go
2: home and not see anyone sort of thing. So we talked to a lot of different small business owners here on the podcast, and we always like to ask each of them what tips that they have for those wishing to start their own businesses. And in this case in particular, do you have any advice to parental entrepreneurs?
1: I would say definitely you need to find your community. Uh, The community I just mentioned, it is in so incredibly important for your mental health, for your balance, for your ability to thrive as a business that you have people who believe in you and believe in what you're doing. So, for me, early on, that was the Andersonville Galleria. And um, still to this day, you know, there are somewhat, I guess you could say, mentors, business mentors that I've sought out. And those relationships are so important. And also approaches, approaching it not as, hey, I want to pick your brain about this because business owners are so busy and sometimes it can feel really overwhelming when you're trying to manage so many things and someone wants to just come and you know hear about every single piece of knowledge you've accumulated. I mean, I personally will always, even when I'm super busy, try to make time to pass that forward because so many people have given that to me. And there are always going to be people that are more gatekeeping who, you know, have more of an attitude of, you know, I figured this out on my own, so you should. But like I said before, the majority of people really do want to support new businesses and the new business community. And so I think seeking those people out, figuring out who they are and having genuine, you know, friendships and relationships with them, so that when you do trade resources, it is really about that community and not about, hey, I you know want to pick your brain so that I can come and copy your business or something like that. It's it's just really a different attitude and approach. Um, and I want to give you one really quick example. Yeah, go for it. So one of my close friends that I've made, she was one of the first vintage uh, sellers that I met in Chicago. And her name is Jess and her brand is um, girl and decided vintage and uh, there was an estate sale that I really wanted to go to today but after I talk to you I have to go see the store and then I have to go put my kid down for his nap and was, <laughs> there are these fixtures I need for the store and they're on this so I I said hey can you go to this estate sale for me and see if they have this this and this and she, goes to estate sales for her business, too. And, you know, so that that's what I mean. She's been helping me out at festivals, too, when I'm short staffed. And so, you know, building those long relationships with people who have common interests and they want to see your business thrive, uh, that is absolutely the most essential thing that has, you know, allowed me to continue uh, without burning out (laughs) at at this rate.
2: Definitely. You
0: know, as a business owner and a new mom, What's the most difficult thing you've encountered from the parental side of things? And what, uh, you know, is there a skill you learned over time or something that that uh, uh, a method you developed in terms of balancing that? Because, you know, starting your own business alone is a huge endeavor. But as a parent, what's been the most difficult thing to figure out from that side of things?
1: So. I can't say it's surprising because I have always heard about how difficult it is to be a working mom, but it still, experiencing it myself, it was still a surprise just how incredibly difficult it is. Um, and for me, I, if you can't tell, I'm a bit of an overachiever <laughs> and a perfectionist, and so... When I first had my son, I thought, well, I'm the mom and I have to do all of these things and this is my job and I'm the mom. And, you know, I have an incredible partner who, you know, that Zaddy's Day card I mentioned was inspired (laughs) by him (laughs) because I didn't want to give him a Father's Day card with, you know, a beer can and a fishing rod because that's not him, you know. So I have an incredibly supportive partner and, you know, he does so much uh, and he has an incredible relationship with our son. So, but even with the most supportive spouse, um, when I started my business, I tried to work an eight or nine hour day in four hours because I had four hours of childcare. (laughs) So um, it wasn't until January of this year that I actually had adequate childcare. I let my kind of mom guilt rule my schedule, um, until the point where, you know, in by January, I was running two businesses. My wholesale business was, you know, fully, uh, fully formed. And, um, you know, now I work more like 60 to 70 hours a week. So I couldn't fool myself anymore into thinking that I could get nine or 10 hours of work done, um, even in a six hour day. Um, so honestly, Uh, Again, my mentors, the people around me that I interacted with every day or often would warn me and say burnout is real. Uh, My mom friends would say burnout is real Um, and you can't work this hard to achieve this and then lose it because you're not willing to accept your physical limitations. So one of the things that I have learned to do better um, is delegate. And it's hard for a lot of new business owners. We, you know, the business is also our baby and you want to kind of have control of every aspect of it or, you know, I still will think, well, if I had been at this festival at 10 p.m. and I had been the one selling the prints, would I have sold more? Would I have, you know, what more and more and more could I have done? But delegating is. Um, you know, absolutely essential. And so I have one employee who's with me year round, Olivia, and you know, I found my rock star employee and she's grown with me over the last year and you'll definitely be seeing her at the store. Um, a lot of people already know her from festivals. Um, so finding someone who believes in your business like she believes in mine, who wants it to su- succeed. And so you can put your trust in them to do things the right way because they share that vision with you. Um, I think that's, you know, delegating is absolutely essential as a mom, as a business owner, as a person with physical, you know, who, who can only do so many
0: jobs at, at once. So, yeah, you've commented on, you know, how things in the business world traditionally. Are different, and uh, you know, you mentioned rules set of the, set by the patriarchy have made it difficult for us to. And I think especially for our generation, we have this idea of work, work, work until you drop. If you can't accomplish it by yourself, or uh, then you know you're not good enough, you're not worth it. And I think that's been a very important learning curve, especially for new business owners and um, younger business owners starting up, um, starting up their careers to realize is that having that support system and having that community is very is is the right way of doing it it's it's necessary so i and i love that you you touched on that and i actually want to come back to your education for a second if i may because i think you know i you mentioned you know the right side of your brain during covid had kind of been shutting down and um uh or in academia too And I come from an arts background, a theater background, and I think from our generation, a lot of difficulty that we have faced, you know, like you said, going into college and being told there are no jobs, you know, what you're studying and what you're passionate about is a waste of time. I got all of that stuff, too. And people from the arts and history and creative fields experience difficulty finding gateways from our education into a satisfying and supportive career. And, you know, we all have our different paths that we get and they can take years to develop and we make it through a lot of crappy jobs or of a lot of bad situations. But I'm curious your insights on your experience from school to here and maybe what were some of the more monumental events that occurred that helped you shift gears?
1: Um, so I... What I love about this question is that I would have been asking you this question a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I was already before the pandemic at a real transition point. You know, am I going to make move from adjuncting to going back into the academic job market after I have my baby? Um, Am I going to switch to museums? And I had a very limited view of what I could do. And I think that's something a lot of people who start businesses can relate to is that you really don't realize what you're capable of until you start doing it. And again, blame the patriarchy and uh, imposter syndrome, but I really truly believed for quite a while that I could not run a business because I am an arts person and not a math person. And all it really took was me having a tiny little bit of success and saying wait a second i can file my sales tax i can do that i you know i have all of these executive skills that i've learned for years in graduate school and i do and they're not just copywriting you know the stuff that i thought i was trying to write on my resume to translate what was what did i do for 10 years in grad school and how is that more than just an encyclopedic knowledge of you know very small area of art history I really honestly didn't know until I couldn't find what I was looking for. You know, I was looking for some greeting. just not greeting cards, but just cards to sell at the holidays at Randolph Street Market alongside my antiques. And um, I didn't know how to use Photoshop. I went looking for Art Nouveau greeting cards and I couldn't find any. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll try and make one. And that's how my entire wholesale business and my entire design brand started was just because I thought I'm going to try this, mm-hmm. and I already, I, honestly, I used Instagram already. I had a little bit of a following specifically in Andersonville because I had sold antiques to people in my neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> um, at my, you know, a gr- the garage sale that Bal- Lakewood Balmoral has every year, yeah. um, and. So I was just putting polls and something I learned from my neighbor, Winnie at Winifred grace, you know, she does these amazing Instagram stories with polls about the amazing outfits that she sells. Um, So, you know, just trying, trying new things and, you know, I, it, like I said I was I before the pandemic I was honestly trying to make a list like how do I describe what I learned in grad school that's not just art history and I didn't I had no idea how much I learned and and how much I was capable of until I just was doing it uh, I didn't know what wholesale was or how stores got the products they sold until someone said hey you should reach out to the Driehaus Museum they might really like your cards um, so I emailed, cold emailed them <laughs> and said, Hey, I made this. Do you like it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they were my first wholesale customer <laughs> and they are still, you know, not only selling my cards, but also I did a custom project for them. Um, so yeah, it's really, a lot of it was just uh, trial and error and then having the courage to take positive feedback yeah. and, and internalize it and not just the negative, but the positive and say, this is working. These people believe in me. I can keep going and eventually kind of phasing out that imposter syndrome that I think is a really core part of what you described. I have a greeting card for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I can't I can't say it exactly what it says, but you can get the idea. Uh, I have a generational series of um, birthday cards and stickers. And the millennial one is you can't scare me, I'm a mofo millennial. So, <clears throat> you know, that's I'm and give that to my parents. <laughs> yes. Well, the Gen X one is uh, also inspired by my husband who's a young Gen X and
0: that's fantastic cuz I think that's one thing that seems so strange to say but we have so many so much trouble taking positive feedback uh, I feel like especially coming from any kind of corporate or retail or, or, like you said, patriarchal business world, positive feedback almost feels like a trap. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, OK, but what? That's good. But what's wrong? You know, what are you are you lying? Are you are you exaggerating and and being able to take positive feedback and be like, yeah, I am awesome. And this is cool. I love that. I, I, I haven't had someone comment on that yet and um, what we talked to business owners about. So I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah. And again, I know I've mentioned them a lot, but the Andersonville Galleria were the first people to do that for me, you know, to say because I was always asking you know, the former general manager there and some of the employees and um, and the owner, I was always saying, I is this right? Can I get your opinion on this? Can I, what do you, th-? and they were, they would just would say, look at this. You know what you're doing. You don't need us. Mm. You know, you're doing great. Keep doing it. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it, you know, and that from the very beginning. And they, you know, are still telling me that today. So the the ability to hear that and hear it not just for okay, I know how to set up. But I, maybe I do know how to merchandise because I've, or maybe I do know how to make a composition because I used to teach composition in art history. Um, you know, maybe these skills found their way in some other way. But not just that, but I can be a business owner. I can call myself an entrepreneur. I can you know, call myself a wholesaler. I can have a parent company of my (laughs) DBA. You know, I can learn these business, uh, this business vernacular and, you know, sound like I know what I'm talking about more than I do um, and incorporate ROI into my everyday language. Uh, And there's nothing about me that is a failed academic or any of that kind of language that, you know, would would come with the typical kind of imposter syndrome of like, hey, you tried the academic track and then you started a business because it didn't work. Um, And instead, it's a completely different story.
0: We get that whole, you didn't succeed like uh, in this particular art or thing that you said you wanted to do. So you failed at that. Now you're doing this other thing. That's, we have to realize that's not the case. It's, you know, my mom always says, uh, you do this thing until the next thing it's not failure or anything like that so after vintage market this is a conversation i had with a lot of people and i need to know when does vintage start and what year does it end because someone at vintage market said that 90s is vintage now And that made me very sad. (laughs) I would argue maybe retro as opposed to vintage, though I don't know the difference between those. So I got to know from your professional expertise, (laughs) when does vintage start and end?
1: So for my professional expertise, I am going to make you feel a lot worse, and I apologize, (laughs) Um, because vintage is anything 20 years or older. So if you go to any of the vintage clothing markets that I do, um, Y2K is what they're calling the new vintage trend. Oh my
0: gosh. Wow. Mm -hmm. Y2K.
1: So yes, (laughs) we all feel really old now. Um,
0: So all my Power Ranger toys are vintage now.
1: I mean but right look at the positive now you might have something really valuable in your closet that's just been sitting there since college um in fact my younger brother's girlfriend found a pair of Delia's flame platform shoes in my closet when she was visiting my parents last week and I said feel free to take
0: them they're vintage oh my gosh <laughs> she- oh emma that's amazing. You've ruined me, but that's amazing. <laughs> but
1: on the serious side, I do put a lot of effort into making sure I educate my customers when they are looking at my prints because vintage is technically anything 20 years or older, and then antique s- typically starts about 100 years. Oh, okay. So I still consider... The, I, I personally, for my own brand and my own store, um, define 19, for, pre-1940s as antique. i Feel like it's more of a uh, socio-cultural distinction than a you know firm 100 years, um, right? This was just kind of a big transition in the way that things were made was the 1940s to 1950s. So my prints are for the most part all antiques and that they are all printed before 1940, with the exception of a few that I'll sneak in there just because they're really cool um, from the 60s and uh, 70s. But mostly I ideal in antique prints. Um, and retro is actually not about time period, it's about an aesthetic. So you can have, so people could call my brand the 20th of greeting cards um, retro because they have a look of being antique. They are, but made from antique images, but anything that's kind of in the style of vintage, um, whether it's those kind of streamline Um, You know, refrigerators and toasters that they make now that look like Airstreams. (laughs) Um, Anything, if it it can be made right now, but if it has the look of being vintage, then it's called retro.
2: Are there any uh, events or is there any specific news that you'd like to share or any communications about when the store is opening? Anything you would want our listeners to know?
1: so i am very excited that my store will be literally a stone's throw from where the vintage market is held Um, it is just on the other side of walgreens so it will be very close to our next vintage market in august hopefully not much later than the last week in august um, obviously, construction, <laughs> everything's can <laughs> change quickly. Um, but I'm very excited to open the store and um, I'm working really hard on Making sure that I have everything my customers know and love from my brand and also a lot more um, and really creating a space that's going to be a home for the brand that I've been building. Um, I don't know exactly when yet, but I will be having kind of a grand opening party um, around that time as well.
0: And of course, a Chamber of Commerce ribbon cutting. We can't open a store without a ribbon cutting. Well, Emma, thank you for being here today. This was wonderful, and I appreciate you educating me on the difference between vintage, antique, and retro. I did not know that. Despite all of our back problems, we're not antique yet.
1: But you could be rich and not know it.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. I'll see how much these Power Ranger toys are worth. Well, Emma, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, If you want more information about the 20th and rare form, you can head to Emma's website at the20thdecor.com. That's with a two zero. Uh, Or check out the Instagram at 20th. You can also see Emma at our next vintage market on Sunday, August 13th. Uh, And then keep an eye out for more news on rare form opening up and the grand opening party we'll have and the ribbon cutting. It's going to be very exciting
1: great and that um instagram handle is the 20th art all spelled out
0: the 20th art all spelled out great well thank you very much emma
1: thank you so much it's been really fun